Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, markets are trying to claw back a little bit of the sharp sell-off uh, we've experienced over the past couple of days. But obviously, the concern is still out there about the coronavirus uh, as it spreads uh, outside of China and what it might do to global GDP growth uh, going forward. Uh, our next guest can give us, I think, a really unique insight as to what's going on on the ground in China and what it could mean. Patrick Shavanik is economic advisor for Silvercrest Asset Management. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Patrick, you've got a long history with China, 30 years. You actually lived in China uh, for 10 years. Give us your sense of how you think this virus is playing out first in China, because we've got some, uh, it's been there, we've got some some data points there, and then maybe as it spreads outside of China. Right now, there's a disconnect between the numbers in China, which seem to suggest that things are under control and the growth rate is slowing, um, and the numbers outside of China, which are spiking. Um, and so whether that means that China is actually over the hump on this, uh, or whether it sheds some doubt on the validity of Chinese numbers, we're, we're going to have to see. But, you know, there's a lot of hope out there that China is going back to work, at least outside of Wuhan, that that will free up some of the supply chains that could create a crunch, an economic crunch. Uh, I think it remains to be seen whether that's going to play out as advertised, because there are a lot of people who are holding back and still concerned that this is premature. So there have been a number of stories trying to war game what the potential economic impact could be. And honestly, they should all just have economists sitting around shrugging because right. you know there's no way to really understand what the implications could be of something that we don't know that much about and we don't have that much transparency or visibility into and could progress. I mean, there's so many unknowns. As an economic advisor to people who are actually making bets, what are you saying? Okay, so so what we're saying to investors is this: we're not we're not taking the bear case or the bull case, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, bulls right now are saying, okay, this is going to push, this going to be a disaster. It's going to push us into a recession. I'm sorry, bears are saying it's going to be a disaster. It's going to push us into a recession. Bulls are saying, don't worry, this is all under control. It's going to pass. You know, we for the past year have been saying that. There are a number of things that have happened or could happen that have slowed the U.S. economy, could slow it further, and could even cause a recession. Knowing that, however, this is not a market that is gorging on risk in a relative sense. Um, when you look at relative valuations, safe harbors are very expensive right now. And they've been expensive for throughout this recovery, but they but they are even more expensive now. You look at the 10-year um, treasury. So when you look at relative valuations, actually it favors staying exposed to risk, but you've got to understand what you're taking on when you're doing that, that it means that you are going to be exposed to volatility. There are things that can happen and you need to ask yourself to what extent am I able and willing to ride out a recession if it happens um, in order to gain those those higher returns over your investment time horizon. Now, because because nobody can, you know, we always say nobody can time the market. Nobody can time this disease and know exactly, you know, how long it's going to go on, how 
broad it's going to spread, what the impact's going to be. So, so rather than try to do that, you know, you look at the relative valuations and say you're being paid to take risk over the long term, but how much risk can you really accept? And you need to make an assessment of what that really is. So, Patrick, what are you in the camp that says, okay, if things do get a little bit more dicey from an economic perspective, a growth perspective, that the Fed can save us? No, I don't think it has a silver bullet. I think it can help in some ways. I said the same thing about a trade war. Um, you know, the Fed cutting rates did help boost certain aspects of the U.S. economy. In particular, it turned around the housing market, um, which is seeing a, a, a real rebound from where it was a year ago. But, um, but it didn't really help manufacturing that much in terms of the worries about tariffs. And in the same way, it's not going to cure if there really is kind of rolling lockdowns, not just in China, but in places like Italy, throughout Europe, South Korea, Japan, of the global supply chain, then, you know, the Fed can maybe help alleviate some of that, but, but it's not going to turn that around. I think that sort of uh, building on Paul's point there is the relative valuation case for uh, riskier assets. Is that predicated on yields remaining this low and going lower? Um, no, I think that, I mean, it's, it's predicated on the idea that, that we're in a relatively low inflation, relatively low interest rate environment going forward for the next several years. And I think that there's an argument to be made that for a variety of reasons that well predate any kind of epidemic that, that that was, that that was going to be, uh, uh, the game going forward. All right. So for your model right now, um, at Silvercrest, what's your GDP kind of outlook for the next, you know, several quarters? Is there an, that recession word out there for you? It's possible, and it was possible throughout last year because of the trade war. Um, but I would say, you know, what? Okay, so what are my estimate for GDP this year was two percent. That was before any kind of epidemic took place. Um, you know, what are we seeing already? Um, the first hint, you know, the, the January numbers in the U.S. economy were really quite good. Um, so going into February, what are we seeing? We've just got the first real taste of what it might be, which is the, the uh, market PMI flash. And that showed the U.S. economy going into mild contraction, led by services, which is interesting because manufacturing has been the thing that has been weighing down the U.S. economy over the past half year or so. Now it's actually services, uh, tourism, and transport. Uh, going into contraction. So, and and what what we're also seeing is that on the manufacturing side, the supply chain disruptions are there, but companies so far are managing that by drawing down inventories or reallocating inventories. But that can't last forever, especially if China remains closed for business, and if that extends to other countries throughout Europe, throughout Asia. Do you still, uh, when you say go into risk, is that go into U.S. equities or is that to go into European uh, equities? I think you want to be diversified when it comes to that because you don't, I mean, you don't just want to be saying one risk. Um, But certainly the, um, and you know, let me give you an example. I mean, there are places that are risky around the world or perceived as risky around the world, like um, the Middle East. Uh, where, uh, but the risks are entirely different. They're not U.S. recession risks. They're not even global recession risks. There are other types of risks. So, so you want to be diversified into many different kinds of risks. But, but that said, even when it comes to U.S. recession risk, um, you are now being paid quite well over the course of, say, the next three to five years to accept 
the prospect of going through a recession with your equities and coming out the other end. Um, and unless you're able to time that, you know, and I'm not, but if you're simply somebody who's saying, should I be for the next three or five, three to five years in a safe harbor or in equities, I would say you want to be allocated towards equities, yeah. recognizing that you need, may need to buckle up. Patrick Shavanek, economic advisor to Silvercrest Asset Management, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Thank you. And uh, as he says, uncorrelated, I think, Lebanese bonds. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's that's highly uncorrelated right now. And a really interesting story as they teeter on the potential uh, insolvency there. Well, Disney dropped a bomb last night. Surprising, some will say shocking news that Bob Iger, the longtime CEO, well-regarded CEO, is stepping down. Um, and that uh, <clears throat> Bob Chepek, uh, who leads the theme parks, is going to take over immediately as CEO. Uh, Tara LaChapelle, entertainment, telecommunications, and deals columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tara, you're out with a really great column today on this news did it surprise you as much as it surprised me? Oh my gosh, I saw the email hit my inbox around 4 p.m. yesterday and the subject line was Bob Chapik to be named Disney CEO and my mouth was just gaping <laughs> and I'm like, what? You know, I had these sort of negative thoughts race through my mind as I'm sure other people did too. Like the abrupt nature of it made me wonder, you know, is Iger sick? Is there some sort of me too moment that's about to unfold once again in Hollywood? And of course, none of that ended up being the case, at least as we know right now, but just how abrupt it was and who he chose as the CEO wasn't necessarily who a lot of people thought was the top pick. So I think it just caught people off guard and I certainly was left just thinking, wow, and you know, what is this gonna mean? So I guess a lot of investors thought that Kevin Mayer, the executive who runs the direct-to-consumer business, which includes Disney Plus and Hulu and ESPN Plus, the streaming business is what a lot of people feel like are the, the future of the Walt Disney Company that he might get the nod here. What do you think? How do you think this played out here? It's really interesting because I, I read Iger's memoir last year, uh, Ride of a Lifetime, he published in September. And throughout the book, he kept talking highly of Mayer. Very few mentions of Bob Chapik, who is a really longtime executive of Disney. And I think probably a good choice for CEO. But it was just interesting that he wasn't mentioned that often. And in the acknowledgments of the book, Iger even called Mayer um, like the best strategic partner you could ask for, basically. And just the, that word partner, it just means Made me feel like you know this this guy is definitely the next in line for when Iger retires, which his retirement date was supposed to be next year. So when it was Chapek, it makes you wonder: is there some backstory here? Is this going to create some friction? You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen now. If you take a step back, it's sort of surprising because you think the streaming business is the future for Disney. That's sort of how they've put it out there. That seems to be the future of media, and yet their theme park business has done reliably well. At the same, it just seems odd that they wouldn't put someone in charge who specializes in what seems to be the future of media, no? Right, yeah. I mean, if Disney is is signaling to investors that Disney Plus and streaming are the future of the company, and that's why they're plowing all this money into it, and, you know, earnings are going to take a hit from this this year, that they're thinking this is worth it because this is the new Disney. And then to name someone CEO who really hasn't worked on that side of the company, who's come from the theme park side, who for a long time ran the home video business and the consumer products division, it does 
send a little bit of a confusing message, though I think that's why this transition period may be really important. Iger's going to stick around for the next 22 months um, as executive chairman. It sounds like he's going to have this sort of amorphous role where he's helping on the creative side of the business. So it feels like he he put all the strategic assets in place that he wanted, and now he's handing them over to Chapik to run at, while Iger makes sure that they keep that sort of creative prowess. And it comes at an interesting time, right, because Disney has all these theme parks worldwide. They have the cruise ships. They have their movie theater business. You know, they, they rely on movie theater attendance. And so at a time when coronavirus is potentially, you know, entering that pandemic stage and the CDC is warning what's going to happen in the U.S., you're going to have a guy in charge of Disney who really knows that business well. And then Iger isn't sort of the face of any of those challenges. He gets to go out on that high note, I think. What do we know about Bob Chapek? Because uh, he's not really well known. Maybe it's to certain investors, yes, but the, the public, no. He's not well known. He hasn't done a whole lot of like public interviews and stuff, but he's definitely well respected and, and well liked uh, inside and outside the company. So I think people are probably comfortable with the decision, but they were just more taken by surprise by the timing of it and the way it happened and that there was no mention of Kevin Mayer, who is obviously really important to the company if he's running the streaming business. And it remains to be seen whether he sticks around and what happens there. But I think, you know, it wasn't so much the choice of Bob Chapek that was an issue. I think people are probably, you know, comfortable with that decision. And and it sounds like Iger and the board had been preparing for this for a while and said that he was the the top candidate for quite some time. So they seem really comfortable with it. And I don't think investors will be bothered by that, but they just want to know, you know, is there a bigger story to this? And looking at Disney's shares, they're now at the lowest since April of last year. And I'm just wondering, what do you think is the main question that investors want answered right now? I think, you know, is Disney going to be successful in streaming and how? Because, you know, even though they've signed up 26 million customers for Disney+, Plus, it, they're not really going to be making a lot of money on that service for quite some time. And there's going to be all these new competitors coming out. So to replace the profit stream that they get from their traditional media business is going to be really hard to do. And also, you know, they had that huge year last year in the in the theaters with Avengers Endgame being the highest grossing film of all time. How do they top themselves? And so I, I think that those are the questions. And, you know, Bob Chapek, he's going to have a lot of a lot of work to do now. Iger put a lot of things in place for him, but they're at this inflection point. And, you know, what is Disney? Yep, exactly right. I th- also think, Lisa, just in re- response to your question, I think some of the near-term weakness has been the coronavirus because they, they, the, sh- the parks in Shanghai and, yeah. and Hong Kong have been shut down for a month, and yep. um, that's a, costing them money. Their cruise ships, as Taro's mentioning, yeah. and maybe even the domestic uh, parks as well. Although, looking at their shares, they're down more than 12% year-to-date. Yep. So it's been it's been kind of a rough ride after yep. a pretty good year. Yeah, exactly right. So uh, interesting news coming out of Disney. Tara LaChapelle, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your opinions. Uh, you can read all of Tara's work on Bloomberg.com slash opinion and O-P-I-N go plus all the other great work coming out of Bloomberg uh, opinion Tara's a, she covers entertainment telecommunications and, and deals for Bloomberg opinion Well, our friends at Bloomberg Business Week have done it again with another fantastic cover. When the bull market gets weird, it's a strange story about the world of message boards and stock trading folks and kind of the impact they can have on individual stocks, maybe even the markets. Luke Kawa, cross-asset reporter, Bloomberg News, joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You've heard him here before. He is the author of that cover story for Bloomberg Business Week. What's going on in the world of Reddit and message boards and all that stuff? 
Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of it's a fun story in that this is the what we've been waiting for in a sense. It's the return of retail to the market. However, in a world where a lot of shares do cost, you know, for instance, Tesla has surpassed nine hundred dollars this year. You know, Amazon, well north of that figure. Uh, the ability of some retail investors to actually buy a share is fairly limited. So what do we do? We can we can buy these options. We can buy these kind of moonshot bets uh, for much, much cheaper that have nonlinear payoffs and you know can be exponential. There's been 10,000% uh, day, daily gains in some of these uh, in the event that you know the underlying does rise sufficiently. So what's been going on is that there have been a few stocks that the online community of Wall Street Bets, a, a subreddit, has really latched on to. And you've seen underlying activity, call activity in those names go absolutely parabolic. And you've seen very, very outsized moves in those shares at the same time. So names like uh, Tesla, names like Virgin Galactic, names like uh, Lumber Liquidators, Plug Power, which is a fun example because it's literally, you know, what's what's old is new again. That was a dot-com bubble favorite. So uh, it's, and they also think that this kind of activity, the call buying is also sufficient to uh, make their prophesied gains come about. Because what they're doing in, in buying a call, if you buy it from a dealer, a dealer's not in the business of taking directional risk. So the dealer will say, hey, like, I'll, yes, I'll, I'll write the call for you. We'll, we'll get that done, but I don't want that exposure. So dealer writes a call, buy stock. That's known as delta hedging. And if the underlying continues to go up, you have to adjust your delta hedge and buy even more. So when they read about this dynamic in a, in a piece that we wrote about uh, Tesla options, they kind of extrapolated this to the unreasonable degree that if we buy enough calls, these will never go down. So I'm looking just the concept that they're, I'm, I'm, that's great. I'm, I'm taking a bigger step back. I mean, it is, <laughs> it's fascinating, but if you take a big step back, someone who's not familiar, 900,000 <laughs> users are on this Reddit forum, r slash Wall Street Bets or r slash WSB. Um, who are these people? I, I it's uh, it's very tough. I don't want to uh, misgender the community, but it would uh, it would seem to be a lot of uh, a lot of males, a lot of males in the let's call it eighteen to thirty five demo, and it's uh, it would be locker room culture. I think to say it would be putting it uh, putting it very kindly. So I mean, this harken this reminds me of kind of the the day trading boom of I don't know ten or fifteen years ago, and that kind of suggested all right, this is the top of the market. When these you know, individuals are getting in and, and bidding up stocks to crazy levels, this might mark the top. What's the thought there? I mean, could could have happened, could have been. I mean, we're we're in a downdraft now. We're off the peaks. That this could have been the uh, the perfect blow off top <laughs> signal that it. we were looking for in the event that we uh, continue to extend to the downside in the stock market. Uh, what I think is definitely different this time is the how localized a lot of this euphoria is. Like, yeah, sure, stocks in general around the world were having a great January. But and you were starting to see just in general retail flows purely into stocks come back. But the localized nature of how just certain names were really seeing the activity and really getting pushed, whereas you know back in the day it was just everything getting pushed and people piling into everything. That's what kind of sets this apart and makes it look a little less scary. Also, you know this was barely getting off the ground. The retail was retail involvement was really 
just only starting to come back when we've run into a, a bit of difficulty getting higher in the general market here. So it, uh, you know, that that trend could have some staying power in the event that we're able to resume an uptrend. The usernames Soul Train RNS on Whole Gran, <laughs> or really catchy, right? Recently unearthed. I'm just wondering how much time do you spend on these on this forum? Uh, actually, this is not the subreddit I frequent the most op- often. The my subreddit of choice is Spoiled Survivor. I like to you know try and get hints on which Survivor players might be voted off the island next. And Reddit's also fairly adept at Wait, that. Wait, seriously? Oh yeah. That, how there's, much? How much time do you spend on that one? Uh, that one. That one. I'd be embarrassed to say how much time <laughs> I spend on it. Uh, but uh, well, Wall Street bets. This has been uh, more of a a job for me, just because uh-huh. it was it was in <laughs> mid. January when I was noticing just some Tesla calls go off. Tesla was having I a this. great week, yeah. uh, but the, the C700 strikes that were about to expire in two days and would have required Tesla to rally about 40% in two days, those are starting to see a lot of activity. And I was just like, what, what the heck is going on here? What in the world? Who could possibly want something like this? This is absolutely nuts. And that trail led me to, to Wall Street Bets. Yeah, I remember. And you wrote a story about it. And it was a fantastic story. And your Business Week uh, cover story, also fantastic. Luke Kawa, Bloomberg Cross asset reporter and correspondent for Survivor and the potential next ejected contestant. I'm struck by a story today on the Bloomberg Terminal trying to explain sentiment behind today's blip upward in equities. They say blip because a 1% move following the drops that we saw over the past few days looks relatively uh, sanguine in terms of the blip-like. severity. Blip-like. Yes, <laughs> blip-like. Um, one quote here, uh, an investor saying, investors are saying, okay, we have gotten a correction done. We've traded off the headlines. Now let's wait and see where the facts come in. Someone who's scouring the facts, Brad Setzer, Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and Senior Advisor at Exante Data, uh, with extensive experience uh, with the U.S. Treasury Department and beyond tracking international flows. Brad, you know, it would be really good without a, a, a sense of the data in terms of the slowdown currently in Asia. How was the data looking leading up to this period of time? Well, the the trade data, uh, particularly the U.S. import data in Q4, was very weak. Uh, U.S. imports from China were down, let's say, 20% year over year in Q4, uh, largely in, uh, because of the, the still substantial tariffs that had been imposed over the previous uh, 12 months. Uh, there's been some shift in supply chains to Vietnam, to Taiwan, but the scale of the shift in supply chains is actually fairly modest. Uh, I think the data in Q4 was telling us much more about trade destruction than trade diversion. Uh, and I think, you know, we're going to obviously get another quarter of uh, significantly less trade uh, because China's largely been shut down. That doesn't tell us very much about the more fundamental forces reordering supply chains. It just tells us that there was a true exogenous shock uh, from the coronavirus. So, Brad, what data, what's the data telling us about the economic impact on China right now from the virus? You say it's you know effectively shut down. We've seen numbers that maybe half of production shut down. I'm not sure kind of where that number comes out, but... What do we think is going to be the ultimate impact on the economy of China? I mean, I think it's going to be a a very substantial slowdown. Uh, All the data for, you know, coal 
you know, burning coal from burning coal to uh, density of, of transportation is running closer to the lows of the Chinese New Year than to where it typically would be. That doesn't mean China is completely shut down, but it means it's operating well below capacity. You know, and to state the obvious, in a typical week, you generate 2% or so of the, your economic output for the year. And so the longer China is operating at, say, 50% capacity, the bigger the, the fall in output. So I think increasingly forecasters are predicting not just a quarter-on-quarter fall in Chinese output, but a year-over-year-over-year fall. So the output in Q1 of this year would be below that of Q1 of last year. Now, to put that in context, remember that the Chinese economy in Q1 is typically 10% smaller than it is in Q4. So there, there's a naturally a, a wide range of seasonal variation. The problem is that this wasn't anticipated. We weren't prepared for it. And so there's going to be more... Uh, more disruption in supply chains, and it will be a challenge to maintain income when people aren't working. You said trade destruction more than trade diversion. That's what you observed from the data coming out of the fourth quarter. Does that actually help the United States remain a little more insulated from a breakdown in supply chains uh, related to China? I don't think the particulars of Q4 uh, mean that the U.S. is more insulated. Sure. Okay, fair I think point. it is. It is that you know the U.S. to a significant degree has an economy that produces. We 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 spend most of our time producing services for each other, and so the relatively modest share of manufacturing and U.S. output, uh, and the relatively modest importance of Chinese demand to the U.S. economy, both mean that the U.S. is relatively insulated, more insulated than say Europe. Certainly more interest insulated than most of Asia from the direct effects of the disruption in China. Obviously, what we are not insulated from would be an outbreak of the virus in the United States. Is there any good data that you've seen on what the economic impact could be if we do get what a lot of people feel like is an inevitable outbreak here in the U.S.? Look, I I, I would think that you might see a uh, you know, it, I think it depends on the scale of the outbreak. It depends on the location of the outbreak. But if significant parts of the U.S. economy shut down for a couple of weeks, which you know you could in a bad scenario see, obviously that would produce a quarter-over-quarter contraction. Again, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on that just because that is the natural result of yeah. uh, people staying at home as a precautionary measure. It doesn't indicate any loss of the economy's potential, but it does create a short-term problem uh, for demand if people aren't working and aren't paid. When you were working at the U.S. Treasury from 2011 to 2015, you dealt with Europe's financial crisis, uh, Puerto Rico's debt crisis, a number of other financial shocks. Is there anything you can take away from that experience and apply to what we're experiencing now in terms of the tipping point for when something becomes more than a temporary disruption? Well, I think you you actually end up going back to first principles. Uh, You can't stop what you might call the supply shock, the fact that in order to limit the spread once the virus is uh, established in a particular community, quarantine measures are necessary, and that's gonna reduce output. What you can do is limit the second order effects. So you can provide people who can't go to work, even though they want to work, uh, with income. 
You borrow a little bit of money, you distribute it. So you can protect the economy from entering into a uh, self-sustaining downward cycle and buffer what is inevitably a, a short-term shock. This is actually really important because Hong Kong is essentially deploying helicopter money right, right. now. They're essentially yep, passing absolutely. out to, to individuals. Is that the right prescription? Yeah, I mean, if, if you all experience the kind of shock that Hong Kong is experiencing. Remember, Hong Kong is a tourism-dependent economy, a travel-dependent economy, a trade-dependent economy, and travel between China and Hong Kong is essentially shut down. That has an economic impact. And Hong Kong is rich. The government has no shortage of budget buffers, and this is the time to use them. Brad Setzer, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts on this. Brad Setzer is the Stephen A. Tenenbaum Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council of Foreign Relations and also a Senior Advisor at Exante Data. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.